Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Strength in the Numbers. Hope you've all been having a great week and really excited to share another conversation with you. Uh, This time it's with Gordon Stewart, he's Chief Financial Officer at Unit 4. And as much as Gordon now lives in the south of England, he is a Scot, so a fellow Celt. So we start our conversation talking a bit about our heritage, but then we get into the purpose of forecasting, uh, what it really is and it might be not what you think. So we have a very good conversation around that. And also Gordon gives us some very good tips about how his early consulting experiences with McKinsey have informed how he approaches his finance work today. And we can all benefit from that experience. We examine artificial intelligence, why some businesses might be slow in adopting technologies like this, but also where it can be readily deployed in finance. And I'll also be interested to get your thoughts on what Gordon views as the real objective of communication and some tips that he's found that works where finance professionals can improve the effectiveness of our communications with decision makers. And I really love some of Gordon's parting advice, particularly around the collecting experiences like badges, because it resonates so much with what we're trying to do here with Strength in the Numbers, is help you collecting those badges by sharing so many experiences from the likes of Gordon and other great mentors in finance out there. So I hope you really enjoyed this episode as, a, as much as I did catching up with Gordon. If you did, we really appreciate when you shared the show with your friends and colleagues. You can subscribe on all the major platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify and Amazon Music. Of course, if you want to find out more about Gordon, detailed timestamp show notes, the transcript of our conversation and how to connect with Gordon plus more, you can find that at sitnshow.com. And thanks again for tuning in today. But for now, I think that's enough for me. So without further ado, over to Gordon and the show. Gordon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hope all's well with you. It is, yeah. It's our pleasure to have you. I know we've had a good chat previously, but some of our audience may not be as familiar with your background. So would you mind giving us a quick uh, intro to your journey in accounting and finance, please? Sure, yeah. It's, it's more of a random walk than a journey, I think. I find myself uh, these days as the, the CFO of Unit 4. We're an enterprise software business focused on people-centric industries, where people are the kind of key thing that what they use to deliver their services. I've been doing CFO roles around technology and services for the last 20 years or so. Most of the 90s, I spent doing management consulting, qualified as an accountant before I, I went into that, and started my career many years ago making steel. Is that making steel? Yeah, yeah, I was a steel maker to begin with. Oh my with. goodness, how did you go from being a steel maker to the world of finance? So I worked for uh, British Steel in the mid-1980s, which was, I wouldn't say the, the heyday of British industry, but it was a tough time for British industry. It was the middle of the kind of Thatcher, a lot of industrial strife and turmoil. And I decided life in accountancy and finance sounded a lot more attractive. So uh, I jumped ship. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually quite funny. I suppose that way you appreciate the finance and the accounting work much more. It's yeah. definitely much safer. Yeah, it's rare that we have people dying on the job, so to speak. 
Uh, yeah, no, I have to say, I do have a soft spot for your part of the world up in Scotland. A lot of my early mentors in accounting and finance were actually Scott. I learned an awful lot from them, but I did feel there was a disproportionate amount of accountants came out of Scotland. Was that anything? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know, actually. Everywhere you go around the world, bump into Scottish accountants. Maybe they were the ones that had the wisdom to escape. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I do think that with the passing of time, I've become more Scottish. As the links you have start to lengthen, you know, my, my parents stuff that there's less of them than there were around then. You search to find ties to the places that mean something to you. Yeah, it was interesting. My wife got me one of those DNA tests, heritage.com or something like that. I probably butchered that. I don't know if you've come across them. I've got two that I haven't dared to use in my cupboard. Oh, jeez, yeah. In case, yeah in, case it, in case it comes out that I'm English. <laughs> yeah, I think some of our audience will appreciate that. I had a similar fear, and I have to say I've got a lot of English friends. I'll say that in jest, like yourself, Gordon. But the... Um, you just don't know what kind of worms is going to open. So thank goodness when I got the results back. Glad to say. Kelt. But also 21% Scandinavian. And maybe okay. that's why we've got so many listeners out there. Uh, maybe oh. some relatability there. But yeah, that was a bit of a shock. So you don't know what kind of worms you open up. Because my father, I was saying, Dad, where does the Scandinavian come from? Absolutely no idea. Yeah, and people don't have, unless they go and look for it, don't have a hugely detailed understanding of where they came from. But you maybe know, you're certainly two or three generations back because they were around when you were around. But once you get a bit further back than that, unless you've gone to ask, you don't find. Both both your country and my country, so this is a people from the 16th, 17th, 18th century. But it's all that movement around and whatever. But one thing that's been fairly constant, and I think there's been a very good heritage, is actually in accounting and finance. It's one of the oldest professions out there. As long as businesses wanted to make decisions, they've needed us to record data. Yep. And then more lately, with where you've been working, technology and services, is actually do something with that, help them understand the future. What's sort of exciting you about most of your work and finance at the moment? Gosh, there's so many things happening just now in terms of the great return to work. You know, the other thing you keep seeing now is the great resignation where everyone's changing jobs because they've got oh. fed up for the last 18 months. So there's a lot, I think, within that, in my job, and for me, trying to keep the ship steady and understand where things are going. And the new tooling and particularly a race to find better ways of forecasting, better ways of doing scenario planning, being more adaptive. We did a thing recently around AI and looking to see how does that change what you do. And like everything that comes out, it takes a while for people to work out what it does best and how it best addresses the challenges and the issues that they face. Because it's not always immediately apparent what the benefit of something is going to be. There's plenty of things out there that have unintended consequences. 100%. But I suppose, look, um, forecasting, businesses look to us a lot to do that better. Given probably a lot of people's forecasts went out the window a couple of years ago, 18 months ago, has the usefulness been diminished or are actually people need forecasts now more than ever? Yeah, I, th I think the days where you could write a plan for five years and then four and think it might actually <laughs> materialise, I think, are, are behind us. And I think that's probably been the case for quite a long period of time. I think so. The businesses that I've worked in for the last 20, 25 years, the one constant and the thing that's probably attracted me to them as well has been that they couldn't just keep doing the same thing. They had to reinvent themselves because of regulation, competition, technology, ownership structures. I think that the role that I feel I play is helping the business to understand the business more. I've always had a kind of natural curiosity about how things work. And, and that, that kind of probably was the first thing to me about sort of science at universities and engineering. But wanting to know how things work. How does the business make money? 
understanding what are the kind of key drivers, what are the risk areas, and being able to plot a course through that. So that from a forecasting perspective, it's not getting the right forecast, but it's understanding what the, the boundaries might be of the possible outcomes that you face. And once you've got that and you understand those endpoints, you can feel you can make decisions that are balanced. Got jumped into my head there just saying the art of the possible. So is it like we're now figuring out how to leverage technology and are questioning the business model to figure out the art of the possible? Maybe finance is the, the sort of the science a bit behind that? Or is there still a bit of an art in a subject? From the time I spent doing consulting, essentially it's about taking a problem, distilling it down into what the problem components are and then trying to communicate back to people how to tackle that. And I think that to me is very much the role I think finance should play is understanding the business model, what are the levers? And when you start thinking about where you're going to invest, what you're going to focus on, you focus on the big levers, not the small levers. And I think often organizations can miss that because if somebody's got a pet idea or something around a particular issue, item, topic that they go oh, is, yeah. full speed at, but it's the wrong thing because it doesn't move the dial. And in days where you're resource constrained, time constrained, then you're know, focus on the big stuff. Obviously, we're very keen on resources, but you don't get time back. So if you spend time going after the wrong thing, that's a big waste. Yeah, geez. And, and then I suppose, actually, you did mention the study. I did get a chance to look at some of the numbers. Was there anything that stood out to you, Gordon, that made sense given where we are now? You know, you can rationalise most things when you see what's there and tell the yeah. story around it. I don't think the finance community is afraid of AI. I think everyone gets it. And what you see across most walks of life now is people generally are adopting technology much faster in their personal life than they do in business life. Business is always a little bit of a laggard in following some of that. that. So yeah, I've always know. wondered about that. They'll download the next biggest app, but when it comes to a business, it's just the speed's just not there. What's going on? Yeah, there's reasons for that. Businesses aren't take a long time to turn. There's a lot of people in organizations that can take a lot of time to reorientate how they do things, how they think about things. But there can be just this tsunami of innovation, transformation that sometimes you get a bit overwhelmed by. I've been on both sides of this one, but occasionally you can just find you're trying to drink too much from the fire hose. You can't quite see the interoperability of all the different component parts. And then you get the worst of all worlds where people develop and deploy technology in a siloed way yeah. that kind of replicates it over here, what somebody's already done over here in a different way. And then two years down the line, you're doing the rationalization exercise to take out the duplicate technology. Yeah, so I think so planning is quite key there. But then I was thinking that keeps the consultants employed to some degree, keeps the cycles going around. In finance, that's quite frustrating because a lot of time we do see, we can connect the dots quite well and we can see those things happening in real time. Yeah. How do we, one, convince people it's a good idea to plan even in this environment that we're in, and then second, bring people to the table if that has happened already to eliminate some of this silo thinking, which I think a lot of us think now is a bit outdated, really. It's not constructive. Yeah, I mean, I th one of the things that I try to do is to keep it simple. People go, yeah, the business is simple. Every business has got complexity. And in the same way that every business is interesting, you know, I mean, I've worked across a lot of different industries. And <laughs> things that appear uninteresting as a kind of distant observer, once you're in the heat of it, the issues are great. They're, yeah. they're engaging, they're tough. But I think trying to distill it down, and back to the levers point, trying to distill it down to what's the essence that's going to make the business successful and then keep the focus on that. A long time ago, somebody told me that the objective when you're communicating to people is not to make the people think that you're clever. The objective is to make sure that they understand the message 
<clears throat> and the urgency for action. The fact that you might be super clever and can tell them all the great analysis you did to get to this answer is irrelevant. You need to be able to just communicate and get the message across of this is what's important and this is why. And then you get people engaged in, in trying to do it. I love that advice. Do you have any sort of tips yourself for making it happen? Because I know some people are very good at using analogies to make something that's complex, that they've done an analysis a bit more real. But do you have any tips or good analogies you've heard over the years? I think where it's a good analogy, it works. I think sometimes people reach for analogies that are a bit strained and then they start building one analogy on top of another analogy. And then they this absurd discussion. I like numbers, but I like pictures and images. Pictures and images. And, and being able to show the cause and effect type size, or maybe it's not so much an image, but just being able to get people to understand why something happens the way it does. If that's as exciting as trying to explain to sales guys the consequences of a contract structure giving you this implication for revenue recognition, they're not interested in the, the masses and reams of accounting standards that, that make that happen. But if you can show them the picture of if that goes, that goes, and that goes, then there's the answer. I love that idea about the building the analogies and uh, simplifying things down to pictures. With artificial intelligence, we were talking about a minute ago, that has the danger of complicating things even more. How do we just make sure we keep it simple, as you were saying? Yeah, I think artificial intelligence, you need to think about whereabouts in your, whether it's your technology stack or your application or your business processes that you deploy it and what you're getting out from it. At the base level, it can drive anomaly detection where something comes through the system that looks wrong and it can get weeded out straight away. Where you can pick up duplicates, we sometimes use it across um, expense claims for things that just look odd and it just pulls it up and highlights it. It saves you looking for the needle in the haste. At the other end of the spectrum, I think we might have talked about this in, in the past, the thing that I like about it when you use it in forecasting is it can help to remove this optimism bias that we've talked yes. about before where people generally want to assume that good things happen rather than bad things and there's this natural root of the worst case won't happen and therefore the worst case you get is never really the worst case as i sit as, as a non-exec and over the last few years on a number of boards that's one of the things that i find that i have to continually challenge the executives on is this really the worst case yeah, yeah. great question you get the worst case at a board meeting and then the next month they come back and they've got a worse worst case so it's like how could that have been the worst case what did you not test or what did you not believe and I think with AI, you can remove some of that and you can actually drive it from the fact base to give you the range of outcomes. You might not like them all, but at least you can see from a modeling perspective that outcome is possible. And then you can work to make sure it doesn't happen and you can mitigate it out. So that, you know, that I think, is the other end. I'm trying to look at AI as an augmenting judgment yes. as opposed to replacing routine. I think it takes a while for businesses to feed into that model. I think you're right. One thing I see a massive application we've talked about this previously is um, this op idea of optionality as well is helping maybe broaden the base for optionality. So yeah. yeah, people might be more optimistic, but they might hone in just on one solution when actually there might be some other ones that are more low-hanging fruit, yeah. get faster, that type of thing. Yeah, you don't want to lock all the doors before you... Yes. It just helps. It's another kind of underpin, another kind of comfort blanket that that has been tested. 
the modeling is done, you can see what the outcomes might be. I, I think a key area of this now, and again, it's, it's for those that work with sales organizations, operational organizations, it's this idea of sandbagging. People like to stuff a little bit extra in their conversations, particularly sales forecasts. Having just a bit of augmented help from AI takes the emotion out of the process and they definitely use it in the past to say, guys, look, appreciate that's the forecast. This is what the machine is saying. Can you help me try and bridge the gap here? Is the machine really wrong? Because we know it come the end of the month and the end of the quarter. Who's more right? But can you help me understand here? And more often than not, actually, it was picking up sandbagging, which was good. At least it wasn't the other way around. Yeah, yeah. But have you had any, any funny instances of augmented assistance? Yeah, I totally see that because we have some AI embedded within one of our sales forecasting tools. And typically what happens is you're heading towards the quarter end, but the application is yeah. saying one thing and the sales guys are rolling up yeah. to a different number. <laughs> and what happens is that as you get closer and closer to the end of the period, they get closer and closer to the AI forecast. And then you go, well, that was right, wasn't it? Yeah, this is, this is the thing. It's scary because this, this human nature sometimes, like thermostats, sales will hit their number more towards the end of the quarter and they won't do it steady. And they tend to adopt similar behaviors, which allows you to introduce probability distributions and use these tools. So I think it's great. And again, it takes the focus off of us. We didn't come up with this. It was this machine over here. But what do you think? How yeah. do you understand yeah. the gap? Yeah, interestingly, through the course of the last 18 months, you know, if you figure that's a reasonably unnatural... Yeah, that's a good point. The, the yeah. AI forecasting has still been pretty good. But obviously, it's replicating off the back of data sets from previous years. But when you've disrupted the data, it's still coming out with something that ends up being pretty close to the answer we've actually ended up with. Yeah, it did start as an accountant. The historical records do count for something. <laughs> if they're uh, yeah. captured properly and they're clean... Yeah. Uh, they're not misrepresented. They actually can be used to forecast better with. I definitely get that. Just one thing you mentioned in there that I think is important is understanding how clean the historic data yeah. is. Because if you're going to try and build off of pattern recognition from that and that data is corrupted or whatever, <laughs> we've spent a lot of time in trying to make sure our historic data is consistent with how we reflect and present data now. It's, yeah. it's a big exercise. There's millions of yeah, I do. I mean, people think accountants potentially are relevant. I actually challenge it. I agree. I think there's really great skills in accounting when it comes to data, particularly verification, validation, reconciliation, things like that. If you want to earn the right to project forward and work in this space as a business advisor and a consultant or a coach of businesses, you need to have good fundamentals and good accounting is fundamental to that. You're not going to make better decisions. I'm glad we stopped at that point, Gordon. Just yeah. talking about fundamentals. When I get stuck and we're doing something, I ask my guys to give me the double entry. Walk me through the double entry we're doing here. I've worked with a number of CEOs over the years and pretty much every CEO you work with gets the P&L. You know, they get it's revenue, the they get cost of sales, SG&A, they get that. They sort of, when you get to EBITDA, they sort of lose interest in the stuff below that, but they get the top bit okay. Understanding the balance sheet and the cash flow and how they tie out is something that, you know, I've found the need to do coaching at times to just make sure we get a holistic picture. And I think understanding the fundamentals of how those statements fit together is pretty important. Uh, that's where the double entry actually comes in. I, I smile in because like, how did you build that model? It's just basic for us because we just understand the double entry, what goes where. So you've got a PL, but how does the balance sheet look? How does the cash flow look? But actually businesses really enjoy understanding that, yeah. you know? So no, definitely don't write off that training. I think it's more important nowadays, uh, particularly when cash has been very much in focus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought the deal with the investment community and public companies. So uh, yes. a lot of the time you need to get those guys to understand they're great building models, but their models often aren't fully integrated to catch all the different bits of coaching there yeah. as well. 
useful skill. Oh, yeah, you just took me back to my private equity days. There's stories for another time, though, I think, Gordon. You've given us great advice so far, but I suppose what's been the best bit of advice you've ever received? Based on the fact that you guys have described how I've got to what I'm doing, I would say that I wouldn't overplan a career. I think in the days of linear careers are, are pretty much over. I've seen how many jobs people are likely to have over the course of their life. And people coming into workforce now have got a tough start because they've lost that 18 months, two years of apprenticeship learning period. So yes. I think learn from people round about you is possibly one of the most important things. And it's it's been difficult when your engagement with your managers and leaders and businesses is boxed into a 14 by 10 inch frame. And at the end of the meeting, you hit leave and you don't get that chat in the car or the taxi or over a coffee. So I think you're trying to find a way to learn from people round about you. As you move through an organisation, I've always tried to treat everyone as a peer, so yeah. clearly horizontally, because if you start treating people like that, that's how they treat you back, in my experience. And if you do that with a degree of confidence, they have more confidence in you as well. The people that are almost wanting approval for every bit of what they've done, you tend to treat them as like they need approval. So I treat everyone as a peer, collect experiences. It's the badges you pick that. up along the way are important. And, and again, a few of the guys that work with me just now, we've been talking about this, that if they want to be a CFO in the next however many years, what are the things that they need to have exposure to and done? There's a lot goes back to the size of organisation. If you're in a sort of mm. massive multinational with hundreds of thousands of people and hundreds of business units, then it's quite easy to, within that organization, have a semi-linear career and you go from this to this. But an organization the size of our organization, we've got two and a half, three thousand people. We operate about across about 20 countries. But we don't have a standard business unit structure. We can't give people a role and say, right, you can be the CFO of that business unit, which is a fully functioning business. You have to deal with everything from tax to treasury to accounting to FP&A, we're much more kind of functional. So trying to get the guys exposed to the things that you need to do. Don't be afraid of the hard things. Uh, I think, again, we spoke before, back in 2008, 2009, I learned more about banking documents than I thought I'd ever want to possibly ever learn. And it was hard yards at the time because we needed to understand inside out what we could and couldn't do and what the restrictions were during the financial crisis. But now I'm really comfortable dealing with all of our refinancing activity because I've been through these things upside down, back to front. Just do that because, you know, you learn more from difficult times than you do from easy times. I think the key word there, Gordon, is resiliency. Those experience build resiliency. And I think whether that goes for a career perspective or non-career, seeking out experiences. Definitely. I remember one came up in this podcast was actually one thing we all have in common when it comes to experiences outside of work. Now, if you want to engage someone in conversation, you just talk about food. We all have our favourite foods. We've yeah. all had experience of food. It seems a good one. Uh, it's a bit better than the weather. It's safer than football. <laughs> oh god yeah it depends what part of the world you yeah. don't know what kind of worms are opening up there but yeah no yeah that was a trip to, to scotland once so i'll never forget but no great advice i love that one gordon and i suppose resources that you found useful or maybe any other books or websites you find useful you check out you learn from everything sometimes the book's thick and there's not an awful lot of things you learn from it and other times it's just a short article that you learn from yeah. my, my inbox is a deluge of stuff that comes into it on a daily basis. <laughs> and it's interesting that you can see a trend over the last few years, most of the big consultancies, whether it's Bain, McKinsey, they've realized that this is happening. 
because they now all have the kind of five minute read exercises. It's like, oh, yeah. It is oh five God, minutes. Day. And, <laughs> you know, those are quite good. Now, if somebody gives you up, it's 300 pages long and says, you need to read this. You're like, okay, when do you want me to do that? I'm not naturally good at picking up 300 page books and reading them. One of the jobs I was in a couple of years back, we used to get these abstracts on business books. And yes, essentially, yes. it was like six pages, six sides of A4. Yes. And it gave you the key Love thing. Those. And that's just fantastic because you can batter through. It's 10 minutes. And, and if it's something that kind of engages your interest, you can then go and find out more. Show me what it looks like and I'll see if I want to do more. And so I say the, the big consultancies produce some stuff that's good. I think during the different waves that we've gone through with the pandemic, that's been pretty good. And interesting, they've all taken slightly different positions, not contrary positions, but they've taken a different part in the kind of food chains. Some have been very focused on the operational and the people aspects. Others have been focused on leadership. And others have been focused on kind of structural things. So there's been a kind of good mix. And it doesn't feel to me like they've all been competing to give advice on the same thing. And Harvard Business Review has got quality stuff. Oh, or something that yeah, yeah. Again, an eclectic set of references. Business books tend to... I wouldn't say they go stale. Some of them in search for excellence has been around for quite a long time and it's a good story. But when you go through all the different cycles, people go, oh, it was wrong. And then the cycle yeah, changes, they go, oh, it was right. right. It was wrong, it was right. <laughs> I remember seeing an article in newspapers about one of the consultancies and they'd done a big transformation program for a business back in the 70s. And they'd moved from a geographical operational to a functional. And the paper was being critical that 20 years later they were reversing that. Guess what? The world's changed. Different models. Yes, you know, so, I, so I think the optionality of the keys in today's world to be successful in a business. You can't stand still. You've got to be finding what's the next gig that make it work. I do think that around some key disciplines, and I think a lot of our audience, they're exposed to the accounting and finance space. It's good discipline to be in. It does give you a lot of optionality mm. in different parts of the business. Actually, someone was giving me some statistic about the number of finance professionals that go and become CEOs, I think second only to sales. That's one route to being the top role in an yeah. organization, and you don't even have to carry a quota to get there. Exactly. Although, although a lot of finance leaders are making the jump to sales, and yeah. so I was yeah. around. But I think that in some organisations, many organisations, you need to make sure that people realise what you're bringing to the table. And a lot of it, I think, Andrew, gets driven by who was your predecessor and how did they do the job? Because if you're following Great. a bunch of CFOs that went before you that were very kind of accounting and you know, kind of finance oriented and you want to be a bit more kind of commercial, it can take a bit of an order, a sort of paradigm shift for the organisation to realise that you've actually got a point of view and can add value. You need that, something to rally around. Yeah. yeah, same with CEOs that you work with. Now, I've, I've always made it a point that I would never go and be the CFO of an organisation where the previous CFO is now the CEO. Right. Because I'm not sure it's that I would want the, well, that's not the way I did it type mindset. And many CFOs that do move in their organisations don't do that. But it is interesting, at least you've thought it through. And I yeah. think that's what I'd encourage our audience to do is if you ever have to make a step like that, it's yeah. just have a view yeah. on that. Whether it's from an experience or it's actually you've thought it through, yeah. have an experience. Yeah. You know? The other week was asking me about how do you build the relationship with your CEO? Which is an interesting question because it's, it's a personality thing as much as anything else. So there's no secret answer to it. But I've always found that do the things well that they expect you to do well. Surprise them in the upside on some other things. And do the things for them that they don't like doing. Make their own life easier. I say that to the guys that work for me. It's like, if you want to do any bits of my job, 
I'm more than happy for you to do it. It gives me time to focus on things I want to do. That's worked for me. Fortunately, I've worked with a lot of great CEOs that have recognised that I'm helping them out in that. And also that I do the fundamentals well. So. It's a great point. And I think sometimes, again, we're often overlooked in our assets in finance. We've got this great ability to see broadly across organizations. We can connect the dots, great training, access to data, access to decision makers made for us to step into a lot of areas if we wanted to. But again, it comes to knowing what we want as well as what other people want and then seeing where we can marry the two. So it's yeah. so great advice, Gordon. I suppose, look, if our audience wish to continue the conversation, where's the best place to connect with you at? We're continually on LinkedIn. We've got a pretty good presence on LinkedIn. We push a lot of stuff out through that. I connect with more or less anyone that wants to connect. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, way back in the distance, past and like this would be 30 plus years ago i went to some was there some seminar about something and the guy was saying when you get the the forms and it says tick here if you want more information about this product or whatever he says i always tick it and he says because what's the worst thing that happens he sent me stuff i'm not interested and i can put it in the bin but i'll get some random stuff that really interests me and i do it my my view to it's a little bit like collecting experiences collecting contact points the the more you have the more people out there that will potentially be able to help you or whatever you never know i love that i love the links in in the show notes there gordon thanks for those it's actually that story it made me smile uh, I could imagine a lot of those. I always have a tough decision to make at those times. Do I really want to tick the box? But I think I'll be a bit more open to it now. Yeah. Um, look, would you have any uh, parting thoughts for audience before we wrap up? As I get to the end of my career that I'm at and I think about what's been the important things, we've talked about some of them. I think there's another thing that comes through, which is about people can be very impatient and want to be promoted and move on there's a balance between impatience and ambition if you get it wrong in either direction it can be bad so i I would always encourage people to be stretching themselves and what they do but be careful you're not putting yourself in a position where you can't do the job and more importantly you don't know you can't i know the things i'm good at yeah and the things that i'm not good at i get people that can do it to do it (laughs) but if you don't know what that spectrum looks like you can get yourself in a bit of bother that comes back to experiences just giving it a go right is what you were saying then you find out but it comes back fundamentally understanding yourself better I think that's as much as you said maybe your career might have been random I bet you those experiences to help you better figure out who you are what your strengths are and experiences worth going after yeah and I think the other thing just to align to that is don't be afraid to say you don't know something completely agree you know the number of times I sit in meetings and I hear stuff and I'm like you don't really know that do you and they go, no. <laughs> what gives it away? Is it the look? Is it their voice? What gives it away for you? It's like Casino Royale. You can tell. Yeah. It's whether they, yeah. whether they say it and then immediately look down or start fiddling with a pen or look at their phone off. Once you know people, you can tell that. Um, it's harder with people that you don't know well, but I'd never shy away from saying, are you sure about that? Yeah. <laughs> Having kids or whatever, you get very used to not assuming that when they say they know, you get them to walk it back through. I suppose I've got much more comfortable myself actually saying, yeah, I just don't know. So I just find it much faster. And then someone can coach you to what you need to do. Yeah. Gord, I really enjoyed our conversation. It was really good fun. I can't believe the time's flown. I want to be respectful of time. So I just want to say thanks so much for being such a great guest yeah. mentor and strength and obviously. Really, really enjoyed it. Take care. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter. 
which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really, it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. And when all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.